The Coin Week podcast is brought to you by CAC, Certified Acceptance Corporation. Did you know that CAC coins not only held their value in the market dip of 2015 and 16, but in many cases rose in value? Folks, it's true. The grading services are indispensable when it comes to authenticating and giving third-party opinions about the condition of a coin. But sometimes you want a second set of eyes. Enter John Albanese. John is the most trusted figure in the coin grading industry. He was there when the grading industry took off and his standards have not changed at all. He's tough, but that's why collectors choose to pay more for CAC coins at auction. To learn more, visit CACcoin.com. Heidi Wastweed is an award-winning medalist and sculptor who's produced over 1,000 coins, medals, and tokens for a wide variety of private mints over the course of the past 30 years. From 2010 to 2018, Heidi served on the CCAC, the Citizens Coinage Advisory Committee, where she, along with a panel of experts and citizens, reviewed, critiqued, and ultimately gave their opinions for what they felt were the best coin and metal designs for the U.S. Mint to strike. This guidance was given to the Secretary of the Treasury, who more often than not agreed with their recommendations. In this podcast, we discuss the design process and how it ultimately lends itself to coins and metals that don't quite rise to the level of quality that many in the collecting hobby would hope for. We also touch upon other issues as well, some controversial, some not. It's an engaging hour with a leading expert, and you won't want to miss a minute of it next on the Coin Week Podcast. Hi, Heidi. Thanks for joining me on the Coin Week podcast. Hi, Charles. Thanks for having me. Have you had the chance to listen to our podcasts? Talking to artists and designers is pretty much my favorite thing to do. Uh, I'm a real art nerd. And uh, one of the things that strikes me uh, is I see so much amazing talent in our field, in the field of medallic art and sculpture. But for some reason, and, and I don't know why, but all this talent never seems to translate into mind-blowing official state-sanctioned design. I know that you are an accomplished artist in your own regard. Uh, your own artistic style, in my opinion, is amazing. Uh, it draws from the experimental to the avant-garde, uh, but retains uh, that connection to the classic Beaux-Arts inspiration that I think uh, some of the great medallic sculptors in American history drew from. Uh, but when I look at the coins and the metals that are coming out of the mint now, as authorized by the U.S. Congress, it doesn't seem like that kind of aesthetic allure uh, exists in this art. Everything I see comes across as being too literal. And so I know that you spent a number of years in the CCAC and you're part of the group of artists and critics who work together to choose our country's coin and medallic art. So I wanted to have a conversation with you to find out what went into your work at the CCAC and what parts of the design process that we on the outside miss and whether our coin and metal programs could benefit from maybe a little more freedom when it comes to creating art for the public good. Yeah, it's a big question and one that I've been grappling with for eight years now. I've been on the CCAC. I'm just wrapping up my eighth year. So it's been quite an adventure and learning experience. And it's great to have that inside scoop on what's going on there and trying to solve that eternal question. Any design that is going to come in front of the CCAC is going to already be micromanaged. I think we all know this. 
Uh, it's going to be described to the nth degree by legislation as to what's supposed to go into the design. You know, there's the legally required inscriptions, obviously. But then there are a number of uh, critics that judge the art before it's approved. So it seems to me that ultimately the artist is trying to make all of these different people happy, and it must be stifling. When you are taking on a private commission as an artist, do you, do you face a similar level of scrutiny uh, when you present your work, or do you operate with much more freedom? I get a wide range of commissions from the pre-designed, you know, very tightly decided designs to complete freedom. Sometimes a client will just say, we want something in this general area and want you to put your full imagination into it. So I run the whole gamut there, unlike the Mint, where it often is very tightly uh, narrated already before it reaches the artist. They are not giving, usually not given images, just text about what needs to be on the coin or what they, Congress has designated to be on the coin. There's still a lot of freedom within that, and some are more tightly narrated than others. And the pressure can come from multiple areas towards the artist. Because by the time they get the assignment, they have a lot of notes to go through, um, different groups of people directing what they hope the coin to be. And at that point, it becomes a guessing game for the artist to try to be a mind reader. And I think that that's where they get themselves into a corner sometimes. Instead of pushing the boundaries of what they get and sort of instead of being imaginative, instead they're trying to please. Remember, they're trying to win a contest, essentially because they're pitted against other artists within the Mint and within the AIP program uh, to win the honor of having their initials on this coin and having their design made. So they're really trying to guess what other people want instead of trying to think what what kind of creative and um, boundary-pushing things that they can do, because they really want to win. So by the time the CCAC gets to review and discuss designs, and usually I'd say the numismatic press has given advance notice of maybe a day or so of the coins that are going to be discussed. Uh, first off, I have a two-part question, essentially. I assume, uh, part one, I assume that you're also given advance notice of the designs that will be discussed long before we in the media see them. Uh, you know, we often joke here at the office that CCAC meetings are the continuation of a long, ongoing discussion. And I imagine that you would have to have advance notice of what designs we'll be discussing so that each of you can, can prepare your points and remarks. But um, how many designs are submitted that you don't get to look at? Are the designs presented before the CCAC finalists from a larger pool of entries that have already been winnowed down? Or are we looking at the totality of what is up for consideration when it comes to coin and metal designs as they are presented to the CCAC? That's changed a little bit in the eight years that I've been there. When I first came on CCAC, there was micromanaging within the mint of the designs from the sales and marketing department. And um, a subcommittee of the CCAC got together and we, we changed that. We took it out of the hands of the sales and marketing department and we put it back in the hands of the artist. So it's changed a little bit. In those early days, there were some designs that were called out before they even got to the CCAC. 
But once that packet gets to us, then you see everything that we see. And since we have made that change, now we see everything that the artists submit, with the exception of those designs that were deemed to be a copyright infringement or somehow not coinable for technicality, or if it was possibly uh, submitted after the deadline, then we don't see them and you don't see them. Essentially, no one outside the Mint sees them. So you can rest assured that everything you see is everything that we see. It's funny you bring up uh, a little bit of the interference that used to happen. Uh, you know, a year or so ago, I had on Reed Hahn, who's a mega collector, who also sat in the CCAC. And we touched upon two notorious designs that made their way through. One was the 1992 Olympics baseball coin, which was essentially a straight-up copy of Hall of Fame pitcher Nolan Ryan's 1991 Fleer baseball card, although the designer denies it. <laughs> His denial is absolutely laughable uh, because everything about the coin design is a direct match, down to the creases in his uniform and the angle of Ryan's recognizable pitching delivery. Uh, but the second design, and one I think is certainly worth discussing, was the 1995 Special Olympics coin featuring the likeness of Eunice Kennedy Shriver, a woman who was alive at the time the coin was struck, believe it or not, and who is graced with one of the most uncomely designs uh, that have ever been produced by the United States Mint. And I asked Reed, how on earth did you guys ever let this design through? Uh, you know, the Special Olympics can be depicted in any number of ways. It can be depicted figuratively. It can, you know, you can depict an athletic event. Uh, but instead, we end up with this particularly unflattering portrait. The design was obviously bad and did little to nothing to entice collectors or the general public to ever want to buy the coin. And what he told me was that the CCAC's selection process was interfered with by the Kennedy family and their allies in Congress, and that they put immense pressure on the CCAC to approve the design, because basically what they wanted to do was have the Mint strike a coin for their family. Have you ever had this type of pressure or insistence on the part of stakeholders or legislators to approve a design that is not in line with what the members think is the best design for the program? And on the first example, have you ever approved a design only later to find out that the inspiration of the artwork fell outside of the guidelines of what was appropriate for the competition? Um, yeah, so the first part of your question, it's a big job to police the copyright of, of all the designs, and some things do slip through, technicalities do slip through. There's a lot of eyes on it, and we try to catch everything. And sometimes people in the CCAC, we bring a lot of, a wide breadth of knowledge to the table in a variety of areas. So sometimes we will catch things that, that haven't caught uh, caught before. Uh, we usually get our packets uh, a week or so ahead of the meeting so we can privately sit down with it and, and quiet and really carefully look through the designs without having pressure of being in the public meeting. And we can do some research um, on on the designs and, and make notes and that sort of thing. So by the time we get to the meeting, we we haven't necessarily talked with each other about it. Usually it's just the individual going over the designs themselves. And then 
There was one instance, and I don't want to name the specific one, where there was a politician that got involved and really strong-armed the committee into going in a particular direction before any of us even knew what had happened. So it's rare that that happens. Usually we're, we're well-respected and, and uh, left to our own minds. But once in a while we'll get some pressure from either a politician or sometimes the stakeholder organization will come in and uh, oppose us. And sometimes they've come in with a very strong idea of what they wanted. And then after they listen to the CCAC, give our reasons for our train of thought, we've changed their mind. So it goes both ways. What would you say, uh, given the work and time you put into this issue, uh, what would you say that the state of coin or medallic art is at the present time in the United States? Uh, and how does our current generation of artists compare to the artists that most collectors know from the 19th and early 20th centuries? Are are we as good at the craft today as we were then? Or does the public taste in coin and medallic art demand uh, a different level of talent and skill? That's a big question, too. Um, so as far as technology, one of the big changes that I've noticed is that when I started this, um, I started in 1987, and at that time when we looked at coins, we always looked at the actual coin in hand and judged it that way, and so it had to look good in in person. Today, we're all looking at coins on the computer, so it has to not only work in the hand at actual size, it also has to work on a computer for those people who are zooming in on it to an infinite degree. And that adds another complexity to the designer to have a design that works at both distances. And I've even known collectors who will purchase a coin online because they saw a rendition of it. It might not even be a photograph of the coin itself, but it might be a computer-generated 3D rendition. They've purchased the coin. Then they get it home and they don't want to disturb the pristine packaging. They never actually look at the coin in hand. They just leave it all wrapped up. So that's quite different than, than when I started. As far as the, the state of coins, I, I do agree with with you and what comments I've heard you say in the past that as far especially with the U.S. Mint, coins, we really could be doing better. When I look at world coins, uh, I, I think we're we're not on level with a lot of other countries and the creativity that they're bringing to the table. And we've tried to open the, the gates to the artists and give them freedom to be more creative and innovative, and we've begged them to do so and to be more modern. Sometimes we see designs come to the CCAC that are modern and creative and innovative, and sometimes those designs, while they are what we ask for in that regards, they're not necessarily attractive. And so we're stuck as a committee to say, we know you've given us what we've asked for technically, but it's not attractive, so we cannot choose it, and therefore we sometimes end up voting for the more traditional design, and I feel like that might confuse the artist. You know, we hear the CCAC wants modern designs, but then we see they pick the traditional one, 
instead of the modern one. And that's because we can't pick the modern one if the quality is not there. We can't pick it just because it's modern. So sometimes our actions can seem to be contradictory to what we're asking for. But we we have to have both. It has to be aesthetically pleasing and innovative and creative. Do you think that we would benefit or at least uh, the process of selecting coin designs and metal designs would benefit if the selection process was changed so that the U.S. Mint's engraving department uh, was tasked in creating 3D models of the finalist design so that this way the CCAC and the CFA and other stakeholders had the opportunity of seeing potential designs in relief. I think this way we might see a more truthful representation of what these designs would look like if they were made into a coin because it seems like a sketch of a coin design not only undersells the potential the design has once put into relief, but by not having 3D models, the CCAC is left guessing as to whether the mints engravers can render what on paper you know, might seem difficult to execute uh, into relief. And, and my belief is that some of the more adventurous designs are left by the wayside and dismissed out of hand because of the belief that they won't translate into coins or because on paper, you know, maybe that design doesn't really jump out at you. I think that's a great question. I'm glad you asked me that. In theory, not only would we benefit from seeing plasters of it, because that can also be deceiving as a drawing, but if we could have all the designs made into coins and judge them as coins, of course, that's not practical. We have always, um, we don't have an infinite budget and we don't have infinite time. And also, a great deal of our artists are from the AIP program, so they're not sculptors, they're designers on paper only. And the reason that we did that is because there aren't that many artists in the country that are both coin sculptors and designers. So the AIP program was meant to broaden our net to those artists who aren't necessarily sculptors to see maybe they have an idea that sculptors haven't thought of. So we like that balance. And it would be a distinctive disservice to those if we suddenly said we need to see plasters and not just drawings. It would be nice, but in the real world, I don't see how that would really work. The other thing that I think causes some of this to fall apart is that there's an, a number of instances where I've seen really nice designs approved and then somehow they fell apart in production in the sculpture stage. So by the time that we see the coin in hand, we think, oh my gosh, something went wrong in between. We approved this design that looked great, but the coin does not look great. What happened? There are so many checks and balances in the designing stage. There's no checks and balances in the sculpting stage, except within a very tight, small group of people within the mint. If the CCAC could see the coins after they're struck, before they hit production, I think that would be a great help too. Again, we run into timelines and budgets. I don't know if that, that could happen, but if we're talking in theory, all of those things would be a, a nice luxury to have. Well, you know, when I was talking to Gary Marks, I brought up the design for effigy mounts. Um... I know that was a design that had to go back to the drawing board before the CCAC approved it. On paper, there's no reason 
for the design to work at all. It's it's almost a ridiculous idea for a coin design. But the coin actually is nice, you know? I have no complaints about it at all. The way it was pulled off, it, it far exceeded all of my expectations for it. And honestly, I, I think by far it's my favorite coin in the series, although, you know, I'm not a fan of the America the Beautiful series at all. Yeah, I was really interested to hear you say that because I was not a fan of the design nor the coin. And I, because we know what it is, I think that colors our, our vision too. I would, and I haven't done this. I've done this with some other quarters. I would love to take that one and put it in the hands of someone who had no idea what they were looking at and say, what do you see? That would be very interesting. Yeah, but you could say the same thing about practically every one of these designs because you're putting a very literal moment that is supposed to encapsulate this huge location onto a tiny canvas. And I know I've ripped the Gettysburg Quarter before. I think it is absolutely regrettable that this coin is the way we have come up with to, to honor the sacred place. Some of these um, quarters for the state parks were historic battlegrounds. And in my mind, the quarter series was supposed to honor the parks. And when it came to those particular parks, it was really tough for us to say, are we honoring the park or are we honoring the battle that happened there? We'd see a lot of designs that were trying to depict the battles. And I felt like that wasn't reflective of the park. And I don't know what the right answer is there. That was a dilemma for us. Yeah, but at the same time, when people are going to Gettysburg, they never think to themselves, I can't wait to go there and look at one of these lesser minor monuments on the battlefield. They instead think about looking at the battlefield and the cannons and the earthworks and the buildings. You know, when I think about coin designs, I, I think about how when a national mint strikes a coin, it is projecting both domestically and internationally a narrative of how the country wants people to perceive its identity, its prestige, its power. This has been true, at least traditionally, you know, with the art style and the use of heraldry and other design elements when it comes to the official coins of the realm. But since the 1960s and 70s, we've seen the beginning of a dramatic shift in terms of what the term coin actually means. Now national mints create coin-like objects that they never would have dreamed of making 100 years ago, both from a technological perspective and also due to the character of the design. They're no longer projecting power. In fact, uh, most of the world mints that produce coins for the international market are now creating pop culture coins. And I include the Perth Mint, the Royal Mint, the Monet de Paris, the Royal Canadian Mint, and others in this group. When it comes to the United States Mint, however, it seems like our programs are twofold. One is a never-ending cavalcade of circulating commemorative coin concepts, which have not captured the attention of the American people uh, like the State Quarters Program did in 1999, or a parochial program of national interest coins sponsored by legislators in whose districts these organizations are headquartered. And these programs are typically more miss than hit and are a real strain on the collecting hobby. Oftentimes even, the supporting organizations don't participate much for the sale of the coin, leaving it up to collectors to carry the burden. And with this institutional structure, it doesn't seem that our Congress or our men is trying to make any grand statement about who we are as a culture or a country or anything through our coin programs. And I think the closest we ever came to elevating our coin design to meet this goal was that truly beautiful Liberty gold coin 
that came out in high relief in 2017 featuring an African-American liberty. And that design turned out to be controversial due to the attitudes of some people. But at the same time, it was trying to make a statement about who we are as a country, and it was effective coin art. But looking at the totality of the output that we've seen from the Mint in the last 30 years, I wonder sometimes if the Mint's even satisfied with the types of designs it is tasked to put out, or if they're just simply satisfied with continuing to make the same circulating coins that have made the last 70 to 100 years with some revisions, and when it comes to commemorative programs bearing down and striking whatever it is that Congress and other stakeholders say should be struck and not concerning themselves at all with the artistic or financial success or failure of these programs. Well, you've made some really great points there and, and insights. Uh, the reason that we fought so hard to get this Liberty Series off the ground was just exactly what you stated, that the other programs are so scripted. We wanted a program with much more freedom where we could experiment and just focus on aesthetics and maybe learn something that we can then carry over into the congressional projects. And that's why we we came up with this program and Gary Marks was really pivotal in uh going to bat for us and, and getting that program off the ground. And when the, uh, the African-American woman, Liberty, came out, I think that was one of our most important moments because we did make a statement. And I was appalled at some of the blatant, ugly comments that I read online about it, many, many of them. And the more I read, the more I was convinced that this was an important thing that we did because it was so controversial, and it really shouldn't have been controversial. It shouldn't have been a big deal, but it it really stirred up some ire in people. Oh, yeah, I totally agree. You know, first off, as a web publication, we see comments in real time. And I would say we probably had on Facebook about 85% of the comments were complimentary or in support. And about 15% of them were just vile and racist. And what, you know, I imagine would pass as acceptable conversation talking points in a Bull Connors version of Birmingham, Alabama. Some really blatant things like about eating watermelon and that Obama had somehow, you know, dictated that we do this or something like that. And then even the middle of the road comments, I saw a lot of people that said, Oh, I don't mind that she's black or I don't, I'm not racist, but it's just ugly and nothing can be further from the truth. It's a beautiful coin. Do you know whether the uh, U.S. Mint's planning to continue that program? The CCAC is really dedicated to trying to keep that program alive. The sales of that particular coin, because it was controversial, did not meet some of the expectations and I think that caused a little slowdown in enthusiasm from the Mint. But we really do strongly believe that this series should be continued. And I look at this series that, let's say, Australia is doing with the Kookaburra and the China Panda, where they have these reoccurring fresh designs on the same theme every year. And collectors love them. And I love to look and see oh, what's going to be this design this year. And so I hope that we can have that kind of program here where we 
as we go from year to year, we get more people interested and excited to see, oh, what's going to come next? Um, and also give our artists some more creative freedom and hopefully discover some innovations that we hadn't otherwise found. Well, if things had gone according to plan, when would the second round of designs have gone into production? I don't know about the the timing. We just uh, had a, a subcommittee meeting about that. There were some talks about 2019 being the next release. Um, so that is my best guess. Uh, but other than that, I don't, I don't know any more specifics about the exact release date of the next one. And I bring it up because, you know, I think it's unavoidable. And may, maybe we can talk about it here, but... I know that the mainstream media has covered this issue as well, and it, it seems that you know the Trump Treasury Department has completely backpedaled on the prior administration's public announcement that there would be a redesign of the 5 the 10 and the $20 bill, on which there would be depictions of civil rights leaders, including Harriet Tubman and suffragettes and other motifs concerning American social advancement. And the website that was launched to discuss the redesign was removed by the Treasury Department in 2017. And the BEP refuses to answer questions about the redesign, saying publicly and in our, their correspondence to us that the redesigns are focused on anti-counterfeiting technology, saying nothing about the art, which I'm led to believe was already in the works prior to the change in administrations. Luna's public remarks said as much. So obviously, if art was in production, it's been shelved. And given the mood of this administration, given Trump's own support and admiration of Andrew Jackson, uh, who he has made a public showing of support. If Trump sees Jackson as a sort of a light motif for his historical brand, uh, that's his prerogative, I guess. But given what is going on with the paper money issue and the fact that we've heard nothing about a second design of the series, it does make me wonder if the series is dead in the water, given you know the politics of the present time. Yeah, there's no doubt that the political climate in D.C. is like none that we've ever seen before. And the Mint, it's... They are very careful about putting themselves as neither right nor left, Democrat nor Republican, but they really try to be neutral politically and and stay clear of, of that as much as they can. Of course, it is a government entity, and, and you can't get away from it entirely. One thing that this administration has done to the Mint to slow things down is by not appointing a director. So we just now uh, got the news that we do have a new director, David Ryder, and we're all very excited about that. And I think you're going to see things pick up now because we have a captain at the helm again. Every time the administration changes around, we get this musical chairs of, of appointees and uh, and how they work with the, the long-term hire employees of the government. And so we go through these ups and downs at the mint of, of having leadership and then that leadership being taken away. And then we have acting directors and instead of actual directors. And some of them are really gung-ho and some of them are rather timid. And I think we at the mint have been trying to keep a little under the radar uh, recently to, to stay out of that, that fray. So I think now that we have a director, again, we're going to start seeing some more uh, activity in new projects and some more decision-making happening. So that's a good thing. As far as the politicizing of the Modern Liberty series, there was this huge misconception 
misconception out there that somehow this series was going to depict ethnicities within America as depicted as Lady Liberty. And that was not our intention at all. We wanted to be inclusive, but we never had plans on having a, a black liberty and an Asian liberty and a Irish liberty or anything like that. We just wanted to depict all the different aspects of Lady Liberty that we could in a, in a way that hadn't been done before. So we ended up with an African-American face on there, and it was it was great. But people then jumped on board with an assumption that we were going to continue that, and and that's not what we're planning. So it's not uh, in the wake of, of all these political decisions similar to the Harriet Tubman thing. I think we're separated from that. And we just want to focus on the art in that series and being creative and innovative and not being political. If you wouldn't mind, I'd like to talk uh, more uh, in the second half of our conversation about art, specifically to try to, you know, glean from you, your experience as an artist uh, to help explain or give examples to collectors uh, and people interested in coin and medallic art, what the uh, process is for taking an idea on paper and putting it into relief. You know, when you look at a metal, uh, it tricks the eye. It's an art form of putting forward dimension to objects and making you see things that sometimes aren't there. Relief isn't exactly three-dimensionality on a one-to-one -one basis. It's an exaggeration of three-dimensionality. And I, I think collectors would really benefit from a deeper understanding of what goes into this art. Well, I'm still learning about that myself after 30 years. It is quite a trick to see in your mind how a drawing is going to translate to three-dimensional and then once again to the medium of a reflective material like metal. I'm still surprised sometimes, even after all my experience, there are still things that I see in the coin that I didn't see in the in the drawing. So it's a constant learning process. And as my position on CCAC, that is my primary task, is to help the others in the group that don't have that experience to imagine what the drawing will look like in metal. And in my own work, one of the things that I do is I, when I'm designing, I purposefully don't overdraw my designs, whereas you're used to looking at the drawings that come out of the mint. They're very refined, very tight drawings, and then the sculptors follow that as closely as they can. I like to leave it a little more open for me when I'm designing for myself to let things happen in the sculpture organically that don't happen on paper. So, there, so I'm not forcing uh, that drawing into a 3D, but rather letting it happen and observing as I sculpt and say, oh, I know I drew it this way, but you know, now that I'm in the clay or I'm in the plaster and I'm seeing how this is working 3D, I'm seeing that it might work better if I just finesse it a little this way or that way. So if I don't have the design too tightly drawn and I'm not too married to that, then I can let these happy accidents happen. And I find that it makes for a better product at the end. The mint process, of course, that doesn't work as well because they want to see finished drawings and then once people are signed off on that, then the sculpt has to match that identically. So that's a little more tricky there. I have a little more freedom in what I do. 
You know, one of the things I love about metals is that I think metals are meant to be touched. I mean, there's nothing ex as exhilarating as a collector is like when you're running your fingers along the contours of a nice, chunky, high-relief metal. I agree. I, I like touching the sculpture, too, even when I'm working on it. I like running my fingers over it. And texture becomes very, very important when you picture uh, a portrait of a woman, the, the, the smoothness of her skin, contrasting with the texture of her hair. That really plays an important part in a coin because we don't have shading like a pencil drawing. We don't have color like a painting. What we have is light, shadow, texture. What are your favorite uh, sources for drawing design inspiration? You know, I said before, I, I see your designs as interpretive, but also with callbacks to the Beaux-Arts. Um, I also like sort of your willingness to experiment. You place a lot of organic and sort of vegetable motifs in your art as well. I like drawing inspiration from multiple places. I really love and appreciate the classic art, and I like bridging that with a more modern aspect. I don't want to be in one side or the other, but rather, like, imagine it like cooking. When you go to the grocery store and you're picking different ingredients, you pick from here, you pick from there, and then you create something new. And that's how I approach my art, is I'll pick an inspiration from this school or that country in this area, and then I, I meld it all together. So I'm really heavily influenced by the Beaux Arts, the Italian Renaissance, and I'm also really, really moved by the Polish sculptors, what they're doing, and then all the modern artists that we've come to know in, in America and how they push the edges of the envelope and how sometimes removing detail adds more and and oftentimes more is less when you try to for example depicting birds if you outline every single feather it becomes lifeless and some people think that more detail is better but if you look at a bird flying in real life you don't see all the individual feathers because it's in motion so in art if we put in every single little detail it becomes static the motion is gone. But if we carefully focus on just some areas and leave others suggestive, it has more life and more motion. In that regard, what would you say the ideal way is to depict a human figure? I don't know about ideal. Um, and, I, and I don't always approach it in the same, same way. Um, it really depends on the individual whether it's a portrait of a living person, whether it's a portrait of a person from the past, or whether it's a personification of an ideal. All of those have different approaches. And I'll experiment, too, with making something more realistic and lifelike or making it more stylized, constantly learning it and exploring rather than getting into one track and getting stuck there, if that makes sense. I bring this question up, and I think it's important. I want to talk about two coins, or more specifically, compare two coins to two other coins. So you have Brenner's Lincoln profile, which the Lincoln scent of today hardly resembles the sculptural beauty of the Lincoln scent of its early production period. The other is Fraser's Washington Quarter design, which is also not the same as it is being produced today. And these two designs are really powerful in their original form. 
They personify the dignity of these two great figures in American history. And if you compare that sculptural element to the presidential dollar coin series and those interpretations, I believe most of the presidential dollars being based on official portraits and paintings are very far apart in terms of what is evoked weight-wise from the viewer, from Fraser and Brenner. And I want to know why this is the case. Well, no doubt you're familiar with the term spaghetti hair. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> so um, when the Washington was reimagined, uh, it was before I was involved in the Mint, so I'm only going by by what I've heard, and I can't remember the players involved, but there was someone who directed the artist to outline the hair and uh, the way they they wanted like to see each hair, which is not realistic. And collectors nicknamed that the spaghetti hair. And it may seem like an anecdote, but to me, the spaghetti hair was a turning point between what you're talking about, what, like what Frazier did, um, as opposed to what we see in the presidential series. Because that idea of the spaghetti hair, somehow it stuck. And the artists felt like they were then directed to make everything they did very sharply outlined and uh, somehow in, along the same aesthetics of the spaghetti hair. And even though we tried to go back and get rid of the spaghetti hair, somehow that ideal has still infiltrated the mint, and I don't know how to get back out of it. Because when I look, like you, when I look at those old coins, I see it's so much more realistic to not have all the hair outlined, to just suggest the masses of hair, like what you really see with your eye in real life. And people in real life don't hold perfectly still. They're in motion. They move. And so you see not each individual hair, but just the overall hair and the the shapes and especially the softer the hair, the less you see the individual strands. And I, I, I wish we could bring back some of that aesthetic. Some people mistakenly think that that is too old-fashioned, but it's not. It's just a, I think it's a found, foundation and a fundamental truth of art is to uh, depict something in a natural way like your eye sees it, you can still do that in a modern way. It's not a contradiction to say that. And just because coins are very small doesn't mean that you have to pump up all the detail either. As you've observed, sometimes the more subtle approach actually is more pleasing to the eye on that small palette. Well, I think your comment that the spaghetti hair was the turning point may be the best phrase ever uttered on the coin week podcast so uh i wanted to give you that <laughs> uh, i think you're absolutely 100 percent right if you go to the 1956-57 proof set and if you're fortunate enough to find one of these with deep cameo contrast you'll find a set that more or less resembles what you would expect from a modern proof set 
except for the fact that the coins made in the 1950s are so much more beautiful. These are fully fleshed out designs, struck with relief. And if you look at the dish and you look at the subtle intricacy of the design, the cleanness of the design, the weight of these designs, like miniature sculpture, like looking at pieces of jewelry. I don't want to interrupt you, but there's two other things that you're, you're hitting on a very important point. The dish of the coin is something that's been lost. The dish of a coin was not an aesthetic thing. It was a technical function. It's how they got a higher relief. And somewhere along the line, and this is happening in private mints too, not just the public mint or the U.S. mint, is they got flatter and flatter and flatter because they mistakenly thought that they were going to have to use less pressure when filling the coins if they had a flatter coin. But as they lost the dish, they also had to go shallower with the sculpture. And it was a snowball effect to where we have now with flat coins and hardly any relief. When they did the baseball coin, which was that beautiful curved coin, I talked to the R&D department, and they told me they were surprised at how it was easier than they thought to fill that coin. And I said, of course, because of the dish. And you can use that same idea in a, a shallower version and bring back some depth that we had in the past. You have to understand that at the Mint, there is a turnaround when some people... Uh, retire or leave the mint, some of those people take their knowledge with them and new people come in are not always privy to that. So some of that institutional knowledge has unfortunately been lost. I wish we could get it back and maybe we will. There are some people in there that are really trying to do that. There's people on the outside that are trying to do that. So the dish is, is one, one aspect that um, I think is, is underestimated. Well, I'll go even farther. I think the dish is everything. In order to bring the life out of these designs, the effigy has to have depth. Making a coin's relief shallow, as we do today, not only cheapens the design, I would say the Lincoln scent and the way it looks now, especially with that shield reverse, has never looked as cheap as it does now. It's almost like a token. The design is flat and lifeless. And if you compare that to the wheat scent, a wheat scent looks like it's money. It's a design that has a tangible weight that you recognize almost immediately as something much more significant. You don't have to be a numismatist or an art critic to realize this. I think some of this was lost when the scent went to the memorial reverse, but even more so in its current iteration. Hand in hand with the dish aspect is also the polish aspect. So those older coins that we've come to know and love, they didn't have the proof sets. There, there was no polish. There was just the one texture across the coin. And so the artist could be more subtle in the outlines of the images. They could fade into the background if they wanted to. They could go very delicate and shallow against the background. It didn't matter. Now they have to plan for these proof sets, which need to be polished. There has to be a step and a really hard outline around everything between the image and the field that's going to be polished. And that takes away from some of that subtlety. And that's just the world that we're in now, that the collectors demand the proof sets. And if the proof sets are going to be polished, they're going to have to have a hard outline. So I don't know that we're ever going to get completely back to that old way. And rather than pining for the past, 
the answer is to say, okay, here are our new parameters. How can we be creative within those parameters and look forward? Do you think looking forward is something that our Mint as an institution is prepared to deal with? You know, I've asked Ed Moy, Phil Deal, and Rhett Jepson. I've asked all of them a question. As the head of the institution, this 225-year-old historical government institution, did you spend time as the head of it considering what the future of coins would be and invest any energy in the effort to move the ball forward? You know, the Mint strikes coins that are more or less obsolete now. You know, and before our astute listeners interject, I'm, I'm well aware that the Congress has to author and pass a coinage act in order to enact any reform. But you would think, as the head of this important institution, that you at least concern yourself with the question. Spend some of your budget doing research and case studies on how to reform our coinage to find out if there's a public appetite for change in our change. Could we reintroduce the half dollar maybe in a new size and issue that coin while eliminating the cent? Or maybe a $2, $2.50 or $5 coin that could actually circulate? Because without thinking about these things or or planning for a day when maybe you would do it, there's no way to project long into the future of American coinage and find a situation that has any relevance to the economy that is growing more and more digital. You know, our habits and inflation have rendered practically every struck denomination but the quarter to be practically useless. You know, I often bring this fact to wait up, but in 1857, when Congress eliminated the large cent and half cent, the half cent, when adjusted for inflation, had the purchasing power of approximately 11 cents today. The Congress of 1857 eliminated the half cent because they felt it was worthless. And if you consider that the penny, nickel, and dime have less purchasing power today than the half cent did in 1857, and consider that the Congress of 1857, governing a country that was careening towards civil war, was able to see the practical realities of reforming our coinage system, why can't Congress today? When the half dollar, or excuse me, when the half penny was eliminated, do you, what was the public opinion about that? Well, the reason it was eliminated had to do with the rising cost of producing the coin because of the cost of copper. You know, Congress authorized the mint to switch to a nickel composition for the cent on a coin that was a bit thicker, but recognizable to most laymen as the approximate size of today's cent. The public was more or less willing to redeem their old cents and half cents for the new cent. I mean, bear in mind that these coins are not legal tender as they are today. They could only be spent in a more controlled circumstance. Uh, But the switch also heralded in a great interest in the public for coin collecting, sparking major growth in the hobby in the United States. You know, you might say our conversation today was set in place with a decision that was made by the Congress more than 160 years ago. Right. And so when you asked uh, those past directors that question, what was their response? You know, not a single one of them left me with the impression that they devoted much of any time to the issue. None mentioned to me in any effort to conduct research or lobby Congress or the Treasury about the issue. What I heard was a complete divestiture of tending to issues that would affect the future viability of coins in America, or the Mint even, as an institution. You know, the last time the government tried to reform our coinage in a major way, I know people think about the Sacagawea dollar, but for me, I think it was much more substantial when Congress was trying to do the Susan B. Anthony coin. You can read the official record to see two years of congressional testimony. In 1978, Congress found a number of experts and industry stakeholders and just regular Americans 
in favor of the introduction of a new small dollar coin. One of the test cases took place in Portland, Oregon, where the Treasury stopped shipments of $1 Federal Reserve notes and switched to $2 bills and $1 coins. And what they discovered was that people in this situation would use dollar coins and $2 bills. You know, it's quite obvious, right? You use what you have, you know. The moment they resumed the shipment of $1 bills, the coins stopped being used and the $2 bills stopped being used altogether. And so the government obviously has the power and ability to change our habits by necessity. But there seems to be a huge reluctance on the part of the government to change anything in this regard. One of the arguments you get is that nobody wants to spend the dollar coins. Well, of course nobody wants to spend dollar coins. And I think the reason that nobody wants to spend them is even more interesting. I led a group of people online to spend $100,000 coins to see what our experience would be as we try to accomplish that. You know, we'd spend the dollar coins and then write about the transaction. You know, on the one hand, I thought it was, a, it was kind of a good troll to get 100,000 of these coins and push them through the bloodstream of the economy. They're probably already out there already in multiples, well over 100,000, but you just don't often see them or get them in change. And I felt like if we did it, it was actually accomplishing something. You know, we could see that we were contributing to the spread of these coins. And we did it. But I learned within a week of doing this that the dollar doesn't have enough purchasing power to circulate as the highest denomination coin. It doesn't have enough value. The dollar coin should be a change-making coin. You know, if you use them to go buy lunch, that's probably like, what, $10? Or maybe, you know, it's $8 and change, and you get, hand them a $10 bill and get a dollar coin back in some minor change. The dollar coin then today isn't the denomination it once was. It's not the denomination that you'd ever mean to spend on its own. It's kind of a denomination that you're meant to get back. Nobody is going to carry a roll of these things in their pockets. So they can go buy a hamburger or a smoothie. And so I think because of inflation, the time for the dollar coin is passed as the main denomination coin. And I think the dollar coin now has the approximate value of what a quarter had back when I was growing up in the 70s and 80s. So we need to stop thinking just about the dollar coin, but of coins in higher denominations. Likewise, we should stop simply thinking about paper money in denominations of 1, 5, 10, 20, 50, and 100, and consider resuming the production of higher denominations as well. I think we have to realign the denominations in order to find a better balance than what we have now. This whole topic is one of the, my biggest soapboxes. Anytime someone will, will uh, tolerate listening to me about it, I, will, I could go on and on for hours. Um, we have a perceived value of paper being worth more than coin, even if the denomination on the face of it is the same. So if you put down a dollar coin and a paper dollar, people just in the back of their mind think the paper dollar is worth more. I once tried to give a dollar coin to a homeless person on the street and they didn't want to take it. They didn't think it was real. They didn't think it was worth anything. They wanted a paper dollar. Um, and people in this country, too, I think, are afraid of change. Uh, they get sentimental about these old things. There have been several polls that have been conducted where they call up unwitting strangers and ask them if they want a dollar coin or a dollar bill, and they will inevitably 
inevitably say they want a dollar bill. But the situation has not been explained to them about how much taxpayer money can be saved by making that simple switch. So it's not an accurate poll. I saw at the Smithsonian Museum one time, they had an exhibit about the penny, and they had two tubes where people could drop pennies, and they say, vote for which one you want. Do you want to keep the penny or stop producing the penny? And the tube that had for voting for keeping the penny was overwhelmingly more chosen. But yet people so devalued their penny, they would just drop them into these tubes to vote. So it was it was ironic. And it was um, based a lot on sentimentality. There was a notebook there where people could write down. And they said, oh, but what about the phrase, phrase, a penny for your thoughts? And we like the penny. It's been around for so long. Even though it has no value, people want to hang on to it for sentimental reasons. But it's not logical. It, the what I've seen from my experience being in the Mint as part of the CCAC and talking to the officials there, I I believe that there is a strong desire there to think about the future of coinage as far as dropping the penny, possibly dropping the nickel. I know there have been multiple efforts put in by the administration there to go and talk to Congress and try to talk to them about, yes, let's do this. Let's drop the paper dollar. Let's have a dollar coin. Let's drop the penny, maybe even drop the nickel. And I think they could go a step further. We could have a $2 coin like Canada does, and we could make more $2 paper money. But it's it's been blocked at every avenue by Congress, by the lobbyists of the uh, paper companies by the sentimental public were at a complete headlock here. And the only way to get around it is for leadership to step in. That's what happened in Canada. In Canada, the public didn't want to make the switch, but the government said, we will make the switch and you will deal with it. And that was the end of the story. There wasn't this big debate. And once they had made the switch, then the public was very much in love with their loonies and toonies. The biggest complaint I've heard here that people say as an excuse, they say, oh, but it's going to be heavier in my pocket. But when they travel to Europe as tourists, they don't complain about their pockets being heavier because they have a one euro coin instead of a paper euro. So all of these arguments for me fall apart. And it really boils down to we just need leadership to say this is the way it's going to be. And then the public will follow along and all the vending companies and the retailers, everyone will just figure it out and it will find our way. But without strong leadership, it's not going to happen. To me, the sentimentality can be answered with complete coinage reform. You know, one of the problems with putting presidents on coins, as has been the case with Jackson and the paper money, you can't really replace somebody without having a great sales pitch as to what you're doing. I think, honestly, the way Lou handled the situation was pretty poor. I think if you're going to change the designs, you have to go into that process thinking, I am the Treasury Secretary and I have the authority to make this change to our paper money. I think the only denomination that you can't change right now, I think, is Treasury Secretary's $1 bill. And that's because Congress continues to put a writer in place 
to disallow that as a salve to the vending industry. But when you make this change, you go to the public and you say that the presidents have served our country for a long time, and it's now time to do a great new series of American money that celebrates a century of American innovation and history, and that our new money will reflect these great achievements and accomplishments and honor the greatest Americans of the 20th century. And so you do this across the board. You're not penalized Jackson say, oh, he's a bad man and he doesn't deserve to be on our paper money. No, instead, you open yourself up to the opportunity of having money that evolves again, that it isn't stagnant and stayed. This isn't about erasing history or taking away from our culture. It's about adding to it. And that kind of is what I think happened with the Jackson issue. Because when I read between the lines, beyond my distaste for some of the comments I've read, the underlying point centers around this issue. And I think as far as our coins are concerned, since we have Lincoln and Washington, Roosevelt and Jefferson, why don't we, if we're going to keep them on our coins, change what they're worth? Beyond the political, it's just boring to see the same, same old, same old again and again. Another question I get asked all the time, which you touched on earlier, is with more and more people spending money in electronic ways and with credit cards, what function does physical money have in our society? Is money going to go away? Are coins going to go away? I get this question a lot. But if you look at the statistics, even though a larger percentage of spending in this country is done electronically, because the overall spending continues to increase, the use of coins continues to increase. So even though we're all spending more electronically, the Mint is still producing more coins every year than they were the previous year. So there's still a big call for that, and it still is relevant. And when I think of the importance of money, I think about tourists coming to this country. And what's the one thing that every tourist puts their hands on when they come here? It's our money. And so we're sending a very strong message to the rest of the world when they come here and they look at our coins and they see what's on there. That's a big message. That's a big platform that we could be using to honor, like you say, some important historic people in this country other than just our president. I've always found the notion of putting a president on a coin is a bit imperial, to be honest. And if a president only has a four- or eight-year turn as president, why did we give them a 10-year or 50, 70, or even 100 years on a coin? Right. They probably wouldn't approve of it if they were still alive. Well, Heidi, thank you for taking the time to talk to me. It was very illuminating. Congratulations for your time at the CCAC. I guess this is a bit of a valedictory for you. I always enjoyed listening to what you had to say in the meetings and now having the opportunity to speak with you directly. I could go on and on with you for another hour. <laughs> well, I appreciate that, and I look forward to having you on again. All right. Thank you so much. If you like this podcast, please share it with your friends. Remember, you can download all 100-plus episodes of the Coin Week podcast for free from the iTunes store. makes a great morning drive time listen. For Coin Week, I'm Editor Charles Morgan. Until next time... Happy collecting.